When does a tree begin to rot? Everybody's seen tall green trees, their branches up in the air, mighty trunks, roots in the ground. Looks like it's been there forever and will be there forever more. But everybody's also seen trees that have are laying on the forest floor, that have fallen down and they're rotting, they've got moss and mushrooms on them. When does that process start? Actually, if you want to know, the rot begins while the tree is still tall and green. Insects come in from the roots. Insects and molds and funguses come in through the leaves or through the bark. And pretty soon the center begins to rot. And that center weakens the tree. And then a big wind comes up and down comes the tree where it continues to rot on the forest floor. Moss grows over it, the mushrooms grow up. Pretty soon the tree is gone. What about a society? Can a thriving civilization show signs of decomposition and eventual fall? Well, if you're intrigued by this question, have a seat by the fire. Found the frequency of the enemy patrol podcast. Please stand by for new directions. Over. All right. Welcome to the fire of the enemy patrol. I am your reality scout, the Enomic Ranger. And I always give this little reminder as the Enomic Ranger, I am but a humble scout. I give the information that I have, and you use it or not. It's your life. It's your adventure. So, let's move along here. I break these down into three sections. The veneration of the normal man... Under that section, we're going to be talking about the boomer generation. Yes, the boomers. Talk a little bit about the hippies, the flowers, the beads. Don't trust anybody over 30, all that good stuff. Then the next section, I like to do the lies found in society. And the lie of the day is this. People at heart are fundamentally good. And then as always, after we... Look, take a swing at the lie of the day. I give some practical steps, some things you can do to gain some personal agency back. Maybe learn to think independently, or at least learn to think differently. So, here we go. Starting off with the veneration of the normal man, and we'll talk about them boomers. Yes, them boomers. You know, when I started this, doing the notes for this particular episode, I guess you call it, this particular talk around the fire, 
the whole okay boomer thing as a meme at least to my knowledge hadn't started yet or at least i hadn't heard it yet it was quite interesting when i heard it and realized that i had this one in in the pipe so i've heard about it now and i realize that this is something that other people are talking about the boomers have made themselves uh not very popular in the last little while and it doesn't really surprise me because I knew the boomers being an older Gen Xer that I am I remember the boomers as those irritating know-it-all teenagers because I was a kid when they were when the hippie types were bopping around thinking they knew everything they were going to change the world and all that good stuff they honestly believed that by golly their generation was just going to fundamentally change everything now i think most people know that i'm going to talk a little bit about this generational thing just just for a moment um i just want to add a disclaimer the whole generational way of thinking i know some people poo poo it but i find it a good way to take a look at how history moves along and how people are a little bit different but you've got to remember there's always bleed over i mean you talk about the years like the boomers we're going to talk about they were born between 1946 and 1964 now they grew up during a certain time period and that's what we're going to talk about we're going to talk about their parents we're going to talk about the world we're going to talk about them themselves and and how they are the way they are or why the way they are the way they are and you know, 1946 to 1964 uh, is a long time period for this generational talk. So I'm, uh, how would I put it? I'm not going to get deep into it because I know they do echo booms and they try and break it up and everything. I'm not going to bother with that. We're, we're going to go over it uh, a little bit more broad than that. I also want to add the disclaimer that I'm not picking on any individuals. I mean, if you're a boomer and you hear something on here and it makes you angry, well, I'm not talking to you individually. I'm talking to you as a generation. So if you hear something and it fits, well, then it fits. You can think it over. If it doesn't fit you, then, well, you weren't typical for your generation maybe or or uh, whatever. I'm not talking, I'm not picking on individuals. So anyway, if you want to know a little bit more, we're going to start with the parents, talking about the parents of the boomers. And if you want to know a little bit more about the parents, you can listen to my episode three, and that'll give you a better understanding of the, their parents. And the parents were the greatest generation. They were the World War II generation, I guess, if you want to call them that. They called them, there was a book that was written called The Greatest Generation, and kind of explained them a little bit. But I went over it, like I said, in episode three. So you can go back and, and take a look at that. But I'll give a quick uh, thumbnail um, idea of their parents, the parents of the boomers, the greatest generation. All right, they went through the Depression, which if you have read anything about that, was well, it was a di very difficult time. And in episode three, I give some stories and, and different things that happened during during the Depression. And then just coming out of the Depression, they headed right into World War II and, and Hitler and and it's hard to get your mind into what that looked like that uh, maybe uh, an idea or a, um, a political way of being was trying to take over the world an ideology was trying to take over the world 
And of course, at first, nobody knew the horrors that were going on in the background, but eventually it started to come out. So that generation, the greatest generation, went through a lot of hard times. They seen a lot of death. So after they come out of that, and they'd won World War II, and they'd got through the generation, they had a lot of kids. Um, they'd seen a lot of hard times, and they wanted to have kids, and they wanted to have families, and they wanted to celebrate life, and they wanted to give their families and their kids the best. Now, in episode three, when I went through the greatest generation, I basically talk mostly in positive terms of the greatest generation, uh, the things that they overcame and, and some of the attitudes that they had to overcome it. Uh, I didn't talk about uh, some of the problems maybe that that generation had, like some of the mistakes they made. And I said in a future episode, I might go over them. And this is that episode. And their mistakes or blind spots or whatever you want to call it is directly um, affects their kids. Okay, so here's some of the mistakes or blind spots that the greatest generation had. They had an overwhelming belief in the system. You always have to remember that. They really believe. I mean, they'd won a war. They got through a depression. They believed that they had built a system that was, that was the best. And, I mean, when you're the victor in a war, it, I mean, it's the best. It's, it's the best system. They won. So they also believed in this system, of course, that government was a good thing. They believed in their government. They, they liked the system that they had built, and it, it seemed to react both the Depression and the war really well. So they were very patriotic, and they were very much believed in their government. Another thing that came out of it was, <coughs> excuse me, another thing that came out of it was they really believed in higher education. Um, I'll go into that a little bit more later under a little separate heading called the Haunted House of Higher Education. And another thing that happened to them is they became very materialistic. That I'll explain further. Coming right up here, we talk about the world. What did the world look like during that time? Well, North America, like I said, they'd come through World War II intact. And so all the machinery was in place, the factories were in place, the systems were in place. The men and women came home from the war and it became the land of plenty. I mean, all you had to do was switch these factories from making war materials to making consumer goods. Everything was there. Also at this time, you have a rising tension between communism and capitalism. Now, that was something that, that happened almost, I mean, in, as far as history is concerned, almost immediately. Yes, the the Soviets met in Berlin with the English and French and American forces, and they were really happy that they had beaten the darn old Nazis, and, but it didn't last very long because communism and capitalism are two ideologies that it's like oil and water. They do not mix. So the tensions rose right away, and it almost looked like at one point that they might come to blows almost immediately after World War II, and everybody was pretty sick of war, so they just kind of backed off, but the tensions rose quite quick. And because they met in Berlin, of course, then the Berlin Wall went up to separate 
the east from the west. And that's where it sat through the rest of this time while these boomers are growing up. So you've got this tension between communism and capitalism. The world also at this time, people realized that, that the importance of science and technology. Um, during World War II, it, almost there was, the, the battle was going on as much in the laboratories and machine shops as it was on the field. And because of this emphasis on science and technology, the world became very materialistic. They had solved so many problems to get through the war using technology that it just it made it look like all the problems would be solved with technology. All the problems would be solved with techniques of manufacturing or new sciences. So because of this, you got, you know, these new technologies, these new ideas. And of course, then this switches into, like I said, the war machine switches into a consumer goods machine and manufacturing, you know, televisions and radios and, and washing machines and vacuum cleaners and cars and everything else. And it was like, it almost seems like they were manufacturing all this stuff. They also started to believe that they could manufacture a culture because during this time you also have advances in, in uh, movie quality and, and the televisions were appearing in everybody's houses and advertising became very scientific because of course you've got to sell all this, all these consumer goods. So everybody's studying advertising, how to manipulate people, how to get people to buy your product. So with this, you almost have a manufactured culture. Also at this time, you have a rise in easy credit. So not only do people have more money because everybody's got lots of jobs, but heck, you could go buy this stuff. You could buy that car. You could buy that, that washing machine or that refrigerator, and you didn't have to put it on layaway until it was paid for and then bring it home. You could walk into the store and you could sign your name on a dotted line and you could take that vacuum cleaner or washing machine home the same day. So life was pretty good. So how did this affect the kids? Well, just put all this stuff together. And parents wanting to give their kids the best and, well, in short, they got a little spoiled. Now, you have to understand, I mentioned that, that uh, you know, the parents, the greatest generation, had a lot of kids. So I want you to think about the demographic wave now. Probably you've studied demographics maybe in school or you've read it in a book or heard people talk about it and it's always shown as this graph and this, this wave on this graph. You know, the bottom is the years and the, and the other axis is how many babies are born and it just it goes along and then all of a sudden it starts to rise and then it peaks and then it drops back down. That's, that's the demographic wave. That's the boom in the boomer. Now, when you look at it on a two-dimensional piece of paper you get a rough idea but think about what it's like to grow up at the top of that demographic think of it as a wave but think of it in three-dimensional and you're on top and you're on a surfboard on top of this wave because of course as time goes on this wave just moves through so here you are you're a baby boomer and you're riding on the top of that wave what does that look like what does your perspective look like from there well, 
For one thing, the whole world is focused on you. Your parents were focused on you. You, I mean, they wanted to give you the best, the best of everything. And when you look down to the past generation and the future generation, well, it's kind of all in shadow because the lights are on you. I mean, the TV programs are made for you. Those people soon didn't soon realize that if you wanted to make money and you wanted to um, target something to be popular, well, you just targeted this demographic wave and that went all the way through. So yeah, the TV programs are made for you. The advertising targets you throughout your life. Um, this is the time when you have the rise of the, even the concept of a teenager. Before, before this time, you were a child until you took adult responsibilities and then you were an adult. I mean, there's always been the whole idea of, you know, you know, silly youth or, or the, the flights of youth or, you know, the whole falling in love thing, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't explained as a separate group as the teen or the teenager. This was during this time that this came up and it, totally set them apart. It even put them higher on the top of this wave because they were not a child, but they were not an adult. They were a teenager. And so you were defined that way. So your culture, as this wave goes through your culture, whatever culture, whether it was a manufactured culture or whether it was something that you thought up yourself, it begins to dominate the metaculture of the entire society. So music and art and style and literature everything you 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 your group dominates everything now you have to think that <clears throat> during this time i'm going to talk about the effects of materialism because i mentioned how materialistic people got during this time especially this this generation the generation of the boomers you have rapid changes taking place as as the technology and science and all these things in this manufactured culture begin to rise. It begins to create almost like a plastic universe. Everything is handed to you fairly easy or a little bit spoiled. And unlike the generations previous, there's no way to prove yourself in this. You're living high on the hog, I guess you'd call it. Everything is pointed at you. Everything's about you. And you grew up listening to stories about the Depression and how hard World War II was. And yeah, the type of stories, you know, when I was your age, I had to walk to school through the snow, uphill both ways type stories. And I mean, you begin to roll your eyes after a while and you realize that there is no way to prove yourself. Life is good. What do you have to prove? Everything's been done culture is being manufactured around you the the war has been won there's no depressions happening so life begins to lack one thing and that's meaning this generation began to search as they got older some kind of meaning to life now as this wave goes through and these these kids and become teenagers and, and dominate the culture and then they get older and it's time to go off to school and like I said the World War II generation saw the importance of science and technology and they wanted the best for their kids and they had money so also you had at this time the, the, a lot of the returning vets from World War II uh, could go to university or college and what they called the GI Bill 
I know they had that in the States. I'm not sure if they had that type of system here in Canada, but but they did have that in the States. So suddenly higher education became more important. And you got to remember that the greatest generation, the World War II generation, totally believed in the system. They just, they, they couldn't imagine that something in the system could have gone bad. But that's exactly what was happening during this time. The whole system of higher education had begun to change. Part of that has to do with, like I said, the, the difference between communism and capitalism. It turns out that communism had begun to sneak in through various disciplines into higher education. It was called the long march through the institutions, and, and it's not a. It's I'm not talking conspiracy theory here. This is this is written about. They've they admit it. I mean the the people at the time set out to do it. It was. If you want to learn more about it, just um, Google and study a little bit about the Frankfurt School and how important it was to them. And what that was is is that colleges and universities universities begin teaching other ideas than what the previous generations had believed in. The previous generations had believed in, you know, truth, goodness, and the American way, just like Superman. And these other ideas begin to creep in and scoff at those ideas. And what had happened was, is Marxism had been going through changes. Um, the Marxism had started in back in 1917, after World War I, and it, it had started out as an economic theory. It started out as, well, the workers were being shafted, so they needed to take control of everything and bring about uh, this utopia where everybody made an equal amount of money and there was no rich people and no poor people. And anyway, I, I don't need to talk about too much about Marxism. It's pretty much the ideas all around us now. Bernie Sanders would like to totally bring it back, apparently. Anyway, what happened at this Frankfurt School is they decided that America was too well off. There's no way that they're going to bring this in as an economic theory. There's no workers of the world unite. It wasn't working. It wasn't sticking. So they started to think up other ways to, to break down the, the West and the, and the Western ideas. So they started to bring Marxism in under the guise of equality, and equality was becoming what they need, needed to, to talk to these younger people and show them their parents as being materialistic, uh, showing them the plastic world that they were building, this fake world, and to tell them that all this bad stuff had been swept under the carpet to bring about all this good stuff. So you have the rise of different philosophies that help bring this in, like postmodernism. I mean, postmodernism was good, and, and the, these young people all went for it because, I mean, hey, they were there to tune in, turn on, and drop out. They didn't want all these icky morals that they'd heard about growing up. They wanted to have fun. They wanted to be new. They wanted to be exciting. And postmodernism does that because basically it says there's no right or wrong. It's just... Man, you're just dust in the wind anyway. So you may as well enjoy yourself. And it's a good way to anybody starts talking about right or wrong or morals or anything. It's like you've got lots of ways of knocking it down because there is no right. There is no wrong. 
on and on and on. And so growing out of these two things, this idea of postmodernism and this new Marxism preaching equality, you had a rise of all kinds of other things. You have feminist theory, you've got race theory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it all circles around equality and it ends up being what we have today, identity politics. But these young people at the time, they didn't realize what it was going to turn into. They were just there to prove themselves and change the world. And they heard that as they became and got through university and became young adults. It was like they were going to change the world. They were the big demographic. They had changed the culture all the way along. So they were just going to keep on changing things. And I honestly don't think the boomers realized the outcome. Probably some of them did. But they wanted change more than anything else. They saw this society that was becoming materialistic, even artificial. They saw things that were happening in the world that were probably real, like something like pollution. But, you know, just as an aside, uh, sidebar here, talking about pollution, I think a lot of this stuff, and it's still going, I mean, you've got the whole global warming thing that they keep changing the name of. Uh, but I think in the early days, what was behind everybody's mind about something happening to the planet, I think it was a lot of it was about atomic war. And that's the other thing that's in the background of all this stuff. It, and it's probably helping this, you know, Marxist ideas and postmodern ideas always behind in, in the background is this mushroom cloud that you could, you could plan all you wanted. You could have a, whatever morals you wanted. You could, you could work yourself to become, to get rich or whatever, but it could all disappear in a flash of bright light and a, and a big cloud of atomic dust. A person has to remember that this was very real during that time. It was, it was a reality that, that people worried about. So the boomers wanted to change all this. They didn't like living this and living like this, and they wanted to prove themselves. So the boomers, being narcissistic, they were taught that they were the generation that was going to change everything. I mean, their music showed that, their art showed that, everything about them showed that, that they were going to change. They believed they could do it. The boomers were gullible enough to be suckered into this just because it was novel. It was the new. It was them. They identified with it. Riding this demographic wave had made them arrogant. There's no other way to put it. It made them vain. I mean, when you're always in the limelight, you're going to get vain. And it made them pretentious because, I mean, they were the new generation and they were going to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. They were going to grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I mean, they were going to do it all. So they went against their parents. They grew their hair long. They didn't bathe. I'm not sure what that was about, the not bathing thing. I know a lot of the, uh, the millennials like to pretend to be hippies, um, but somehow they skipped that part about the, the not bathing thing, or at least uh, most of them do. Maybe some of them don't. I don't know. So, yeah, they believed that they could pluck the flower of Western civilization. Western civilization had been brought about 
very slowly, and it had been fertilized and watered with the blood and the sweat and the tears of generations. The concept of freedom and the concept of, of um, man, each individual person having, being there, being more important than the group, being more important than, the, or just as important as the king, so to speak, and having a, a sovereignty, almost like we finally brought about that each person is made in the image of God and building countries that believed in that and the institutions that grew up around that concept. So this flower of Western civilization this hippie generation, these boomers, thought they could just pluck that, stick it in their hair or stick it in a gun barrel, and they were going to change the world. But if they didn't stop for a minute and realized the enormity of how long it took to build that system that they were so ready to kick to the curb, they would realize that when you pluck a flower from its root, it simply looks pretty for a while, and then it dies. Okay, it's time to move on to the lies society. And like I said, the lie for today is this. People at heart are fundamentally good. You hear this one quite often. And there's a lot of people believe it. But believe me, it's a lie. People are good when their situation is good. A full belly breeds benevolence. You take that away or you change that and suddenly you'll see everybody change as an individual. Let me give you a story about that, about how that can happen. <clears throat> when I was a young man years and years and years ago, I had a job. Um, supervising a tree planting operation. And these trees were being planted way back in the middle of nowhere. And it was quite high up. It was fairly high elevation. And it was in May, early May. And like I said, they had to fly everything in. So our tents, everything in the camp, our food, everything was flowing in via helicopter. And they dropped everything off, slung all the heavy stuff in, even our trikes. Yeah, that's how long ago it was. We used three-wheel trikes, which have now become quads. But yeah, they flew everything into us. And so we set up this camp. There was about, uh, if I remember right, it was 15 or fifteen or 20 of us, I think, in this camp. There was a lot of tree planters coming in to be supervised. And it, we got in there for a few days, and it didn't take very long, and a weather system moved in and just stayed 
And this weather system had a really low ceiling. That means that the clouds were very low. And it rained all the time. Sometimes it even snowed or sleeted. And they couldn't get back into us with a helicopter. So was, we missed a shift, like a shift change, and, and started to get low on food. And some brainiac back at the, uh, at the warehouse, the forestry warehouse, had uh, thought that... Uh, they weren't going to send us out uh, wood stoves. Now, these tents that we had were canvas tents, and they were set up with an asbestos ring in them so you could put a, a stove pipe through the tent and then set up this little stove, and you could burn wood in it and warm your tent up and dry things out. But whoever it was, the, the powers that be, decided that, oh, that was too much to fly in, so they were going to fly us in these, these uh, kerosene heaters. Well, that's great. I mean, they, they work fine and right up until the time you don't have kerosene and then you don't have anything. So it was raining, like I said, just about every day and everybody's, you go out all day and in the rain and you come back and you're soaked and it's cold and everything gets damp. Your beds get damp, your clothes get damp. What food you have begins to get damp. I'm, I'm just saying it was miserable. It was very miserable. And it was really interesting to watch the change in everybody as the food became more rationed and, you know, some people just, they were going to put a good face on it. They were going to crack jokes. They were going to joke about how miserable they were. They were going to joke about the food or how wet they were or whatever. And they were just going to make the best of it. It didn't matter. Then there was some that just kind of got quiet and brooded a lot. And, and basically you learn to leave those ones alone because I mean, you could maybe talk low and slow to them once in a while, but otherwise you didn't want to engage too much. They were miserable, and but they weren't going to say anything about it. And then you had the others, and there's not many of them, but there's always a few in every crowd, and there was this one girl who did nothing but complain from the time she opened her eyes till she closed them in her damp sleeping bag at night it was complain, and she was a, a union person. She really, and she, all she could do is say, they can't do this to us. They got to do something about this. This is not right. This is not fair. This is not this. This is all wrong, blah, 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 on and on and on. Until finally, a few of us took her aside and said, just shut your mouth. I like enough is enough. I believe the threat was if she didn't keep her mouth shut, we were going to throw her in the creek because things were bad enough without listening to somebody complain. Long story short, eventually we had to take our trikes and make about a 60-mile trip out to pick up enough food so that we could keep going and then 60 miles back. And this was, this was not on a road. This was through cut lines and bush trails. It was quite the trip. Anyway, long and short of it is... is or the point of it is, I should say, is people change as their situation changes. And it's not, they're not fundamentally good at heart. They're all different. Some are downright evil at heart, but they keep it buttoned up. Lots of times people are good to just to avoid punishment. They're afraid of judgment, punishment. That's why societies need judicial systems and even on a smaller scale, never mind breaking a law, just a moral system. So people, you know, try and do what's right. You have a guidelines, moral guidelines. 
people are also good in order to gain social status or keep social status. In the case of this girl, it wouldn't be quiet. She didn't want to get thrown in the creek. Maybe that's more of a punishment or a judgment. I don't know. But anyway, she finally shut her mouth because we told her to, and she was going to respect that. So people are really, they're at their moral best when they're aware of the concept of good and evil. Inside of them, then, they strive toward good. Let me give you another story about that. This one is maybe more of a legend. It's the story, you've probably heard it before, about the the native grandfather talking to his young grandson, and he says, My son, inside of you there are two wolves. There's a white wolf that wants to do good, and there's a black wolf that wants to do bad, and they are always fighting with one another. And the boy says, Grandfather, which wolf will win? And he says, My son, the wolf that you feed will win. And I mean, that story is good. It's even, I mean, that's, that's a truism all throughout. doesn't matter whether you want to talk about this native story or you can even go to the Bible. <clears throat> I mean, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who aim toward the good, in other words. Those who want the good. And in order to strive toward the good, you have to aim higher than yourself. If you only think about yourself and you only see yourself and you judge everything through yourself, you're not going to be able to go toward the good. You have to transcend your own selfish heart and mind in order to do good. So yes, it's a lie. People at heart are not fundamentally good. Okay. I hope you're benefiting from this time around the fire of the enemy patrol. And if you are, and you like these, then tell a friend. Even if you don't like them, tell a friend. Nothing that you can do would be better than to tell somebody and help, well, spread these ideas along. If you want to take a look at, uh, at more of... Uh, what Anomic Ranger is about, you can go to my website, anomicranger.com. If you want to send me an email, if you have a comment or a question or an idea, uh, you can shoot me off an email at animepatrolhq at yahoo.com. That's animepatrolhq at yahoo.com. All right, at this time now, this is when I usually give some practical steps. Now, you remember I've been talking to you about working at cutting out your screen time, getting off your computer or your phone or whatever device you use, taking a break from that for a few hours a day or one day a week or both is best. And when you're doing this, when you're taking this break, getting some nature time in, Go find a park, 
go look at a tree, go look at the sky, go spend some time down by a river or a creek or a lake. Anything to get you out of the artificial world. Now, if you have to walk to get there, then that's really good because then you're getting some exercise. And walking is rather an important thing. You know, getting out and walking around where you live and looking around, keeping your head up, not looking down at a device, is going to do a lot for, well, helping you lift your eyes higher than things that are artificial. It's going to get you into reality. The act of walking even is reality. You're using your muscles. You're breathing air in through your lungs. That's real. Anything on your devices is not real. So, yes, reality is important to get into. Now, I also talked about doing some left lifting exercises. Pick up something heavy, put it down. I know you can go to a gym or you can buy your own weights or, heck, bring a cement block home and lift that. Do something to exercise your muscles. That's reality. Get the blood pumping through them. Work it hard. Work up a sweat. That's reality. And you never know, you might need those muscles. Way more than you're going to need some points, social media points. Now, while you're thinking about this, ask yourself this question. What are your screen time black holes? Is it social media? Always on checking out the latest thing you put on or the latest thing somebody else put on. Beep, beep, beep. Or is it just Netflix? Just just sitting on the couch, eating Doritos and watching, binge watching something or movie after movie. Or is it just surfing around the internet, looking at what went viral or looking at cat videos or the next coolest thing or cool things that other people are doing? What is it that is your black hole? What do you waste the most time on and I mean you can pick and choose this stuff but try quitting just one of them and the best thing you could do is quit the one that takes up most of your time spend your time doing something more important like something real just get off of it spend that time in reality now if you're just listening to these things and you're not doing them these steps are going to sound crazier and crazier so don't scoff at them unless you actually try them. I 100% guarantee you that if you actually get up, turn off the matrix, walk into reality more and more, use your body, you'll notice a change in your thinking. And if you're using your body and you're, you're walking more and you're lifting things and you're doing things, you'll notice a change in your body as well. Now, I like to throw in little things, little things that you can try to bring you into the reality, get you out of the matrix, get your shake up your day. Here's one that you can do. Now, this one is interesting because um, at the time that I was wrote the notes for this, it was in December of 2019. And none of this... uh, virus stuff this this uh this thing that was is going to go around going to change everything and so people are running around buying up all the toilet paper this i was going to say cordoba virus but it's not a coronavirus there we go and um but i actually had this written down before this happened so um 
take it for what it's worth. This was the exercise that I was that I'm going to get you to do. Maybe you need to wait, or maybe you don't. Maybe you need some toilet paper. Anyway, go to a grocery store when it's busy. Wouldn't be hard now, apparently, from what I see. Give yourself 15 or 20 minutes on a timer. Go and buy three days' worth of food. Take it home and eat nothing but that food for three days. That would be a challenge. Try it. You're going to learn a few things, like how much food do I need for three days? And, I mean, if you just rush down to the... to the um, fast food aisle and and throw in a bunch of uh, macaroni and cheese boxes and you wheel it out to, so that you make your time and you have to sit and eat macaroni and cheese for three days. Not only will you get sick of it, but it's not very healthy. And the same thing if you just hit the can aisle and fill it with cans of chili or beans or something. So you have to put some thought into, I don't know, maybe some nutrition possibly or something that you won't get too sick of. Anyway, if you want to get really hardcore with this, add three days worth of water to that. And during your th three days, don't turn the tap on. Figure out how much water you need for three days. And I suppose if you want to go with the times and the way things are, um, you can buy some toilet paper, will you, there, if there's any left on the shelf. Anyway, I'm not making this one very evergreen because I think this is all going to blow over. We'll see. Anyway, and if you're a prepper type and you're kind of, you know, patting yourself on the back because you have a stash of meals ready to eat or you um, have freeze-dried food, mountain house freeze-dried food, and you have a whole shelf full of it, okay, try eating that for three days. See what that's like. I mean, I know a lot of people, or at least I've read, about, I don't know them personally, but I've read about people that pile up those MREs or, or freeze-dried food. But I kind of doubt that they've lived on that totally for three whole days straight. I know I've lived a day on freeze-dried food one time. And let me tell you, at the end of a couple meals of that stuff, you're going to be looking for some real food. It would keep you alive, though, I have to admit. All right. So, yeah, like I said, if you that's pretty much it for this session of the Anime Patrol. So yeah, if you like this, um, go give me a review, put some stars or whatever. I'm not sure where you're getting these, but um, what you do to give me a rating or whatever, but go and do that. Um, like I said, you can shoot me some comments or questions at animepatrolhq at yahoo.com. And if you want to look more, because I do do some writing, uh, you can find me at anomicranger.com. So yeah, and while you're there, uh, or while you're on the website, don't forget to subscribe. Same with the uh, podcast. Subscribe to that, and then you won't miss one. I'm going to try and do these um, roughly... Uh, do some writing uh, on my blog once a week and try and put uh, the Anime Patrol podcast out once a week. So, yeah, if you're just into the podcasts, they're going to come out every two weeks at this time. That's what I'm, what I'm shooting for. And believe me, that'll be enough for me because I don't do just this. I also, well, I have a, a small farm and I have a job. And I have a life and it's it's going to be a challenge just to fit all that in. So anyway, until we meet again, 
until you find yourself back here at the fire of the enemy patrol. Don't forget, keep an edge on your knife. Keep your matches dry. Because life is a one-time adventure. You get one swing at it, and you got to learn to live it that way. So, vea con Dios, eh? <laughs>